I am Logan Bowser. I am an MC community leader here with Reed Ecklemeyer, and this is my second time preaching at BC, and I'm really excited to teach here this morning. Um, I was asked last week to uh, preach on a psalm, so your bulletin's going to say Luke 1. I'm not teaching Luke 1, but I will teach Psalm 10. So if you want to go ahead and turn to Psalm 10, um, this is a passage that I have been struggling through for about two months. Um, in my daily study, I just came across Psalm 10, and it just spoke to me where I was at in frustrations um, in the world and at times at work. Um, so I'm excited to share what God has been teaching me in Psalm 10. And I, I hope this morning you see what Psalm 10 is teaching, as I did, that God is not silent in the midst of helplessness and oppression, but he gives the hope of the kingdom. God is not silent in the midst of oppression and helplessness, but he gives the hope of the kingdom. Um, Before we read Psalm 10, um, I'm going to share a story of a moment that led me to understanding the kingdom and this psalm in the nature that I did. I do. Um, Seven years ago, I was an RA at Crouch Hall here at HLG, and yeah, uh, and I was preparing uh, at the end of August for new students to come in. I was really excited for the year. I was a junior, and I was actually the head RA of Crouch, so I was pretty much in charge because we didn't have an RD there. Um, Each year, a church of of the community um, sponsors the dorm. And that year, uh, the church that sponsored Crouch was BC. Um, If you knew me in college, you probably knew I was not a fan of BC at all. (laughs) It's kind of crazy how God changed my heart in that and led me to want to be part of BC. So I woke up in the morning and... I go outside, and I start preparing, and Dan Bourne drives up and sits next to me, and we start talking, and I'm skeptical, but he is funny and sarcastic, as Dan is, and throughout the day, we start talking about deeper stuff. We talk about theology and discipleship and the nations, and I realize that all these preconceived notions of what BC was about, I had wrong. Um... So Dan and I started talking more regularly, and uh, in March that year, um, BC hosted a live conference of the Verge Conference. I don't know if many of you remember it, but it was there that I was exposed to gospel and theology. And in the kingdom, sorry, uh, I'm getting a little emotional, and I don't know why. I, it's crazy to see how God in his sovereignty works, because I can't imagine where I'd be at without that conversation with Dan. And without getting exposed to gospel-centered theology, and then kingdom theology, Dan began discipling me, men from BC began pouring into me, and I got to see scripture and a new light. That the kingdom is not simply something that we get at the end of our life. It's not just heaven. 
but the kingdom is expanding the rule and reign of God in our daily lives through everything that we do and through how we share the truths of what the gospel is and who God is. Um, So I get to look back through the lens of Christ when I'm reading Psalm 10 and see that when he talks about kingdom in Psalm 10, it's also looking forward to the kingdom that God is going to bring forth to the nations through Jesus. So let us pray real quick and read Psalm 10 and get into it. Father, I thank you so much for who you are. I thank you for a God who listens to the cries of your people and cares for the helpless and the needy that you provide for us in the midst of our weakness. Father, you are good and faithful. I ask you to please soften our heart to what your word has to say and that you would Make us more into your image. It's your name I pray. Amen. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God is forgotten. He has hidden his face and you will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you take note of mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been their helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desires of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart and you will incline your ears to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that the man who is of this earth may strike terror no more. Psalm 10 is an interesting psalm because uh, it doesn't have a title, and it's actually a continuation of Psalm 9 that is an acrostic poem that uh, David has written. And it's a corporate lament for the people of Israel. Basically, uh, 
the wealthy Israelites were taking advantage of the poor and the helpless and murdering them and acting as if God didn't care and that he wasn't going to judge them. I think that our first reaction as some as people who are under the new covenant when we read this psalm though is why would David ask why God isn't near? I think that's a natural reaction because we have a theology and we know that God in his nature is present everywhere and that God doesn't remove himself from anything. But when we look at the list that David provides of the man, um, I will call him the faithless man, I think we can begin to empathize with David asking, why are you not doing anything? Why don't you care? I think that list is on a slide, but I want to just read that real quick. This man hotly pursues the poor. He boasts in the desires of their soul. He's greedy for gain. He renounces the Lord. He does not seek God. His thoughts are, there is no God. He prospers at all time. He scoffs at the notion of God's judgment. He's convinced that he will never meet adversity through all the time. His mouth is filled with cursing, deceit, and oppression. He sits in ambush in villages. He murders the innocent in hiding places. He watches for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in a thicket. He lurks to seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed and fall by his might. And he's convinced that God has forgotten, hid his face, and will never see his, see his evil. So we have this man who is fairly convinced that he is like a god. He is prideful, he is murderous, he's oppressive. Now, I, I don't know if we see everything to this extent in our daily lives, but if you're anything like me, when you get on social media, because that's typically where we get our news now, you read stories of oppression, and you read stories of the wealthy, or the powerful taking advantage of the poor. I remember specific stories that I've read in the past couple of weeks to where I see this and I have this reaction that David has. God, if, if you are good, if you are who you say you are, then why is this happening? This seems contrary to the very nature that you have, and you're allowing these things to take place. Which I think is very easy to do because we're small, and we're human, and we're inside of time, and we don't see the grand scope of God's plan. We don't see that what man meant for evil, God means for good. So I typically have one of two reactions when reading those stories. I, I get upset and frustrated and frustrated at God that these things are happening. Or two, which is 
probably the worst of the two is I just don't care. And I scroll past it and I read a story about soccer because that's a lot easier for me to read or I click on pictures of my friend's kids and I just move on with my life in an act of if oppression and other people aren't suffering. It is my hope that today if you're in either one of those places as I struggle with being in, that we move past that as the psalmist does. Because David begins by saying, why are you not here, God? Why are you not doing these things? Why are you allowing these things to happen to your people? And we're not even talking about the lost here. We're talking about these are happening to the people of Israel. To verse 12 through 15, we'll read those real quick. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you know mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands to the helpless commits himself. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper to the fatherless. You break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. You call his wickedness to account till you find none. So instead of just sitting in a lament and sadness and frustration that God's going, allowing these things to happen, David does the logical thing. He prays to the one that controls the situation that this is happening in. And he asks for him to intervene. He prays that he would insert himself in this situation and not forget the afflicted. Now, as David prays this, he continues on, and it's like when he calls out to God in the midst of helplessness and weakness, God answers and reminds him of the very truths that he knows, because he starts pointing out this man that is calling himself a God that sees himself as above God's judgment, who thinks that he is all-powerful, isn't. David remembers that this man is going to be called to account. That God is an eternal judge who is going to hold him accountable for the actions that he's committed. And then once he remembers that truth, he continues on to remember, oh yeah, you, you do care for the fatherless. You are near the afflicted. You are near the helpless. And David ends this section by asking God to break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer and to call his wickedness to account. Which is, that's kind of hard for me to read because being in the New Covenant, my, my attitude towards all lost is I just want God to save them, which I think is a good thing. But I think praying that God would hold the evildoer to account for what he's done is good. That God's justice would reign, not just in this world, but also knowing that those who are taking advantage of the oppressed and the weak are going to be held to account at the end of time. That God is going to give them over to their misdeeds. 
but I think ultimately our our heart as we look at this in David's prayer, which I I think we see him praying truths about who God is and about the situation, is praying that those who are doing evil, taking advantage of, of the helpless and the poor, would see the truth of who he is and the truth that God is the sovereign. They aren't. David moves from a, a state of intercession to a proclamation in verse 16 through 18. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desires of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ears to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that the man who is of this earth may strike terror no more. As I was reading this psalm and have studied it for quite a while at this point, um, at the beginning of it, I was really excited because he was talking about the kingdom. And the king is for is king. God is king forever and ever. And I was excited to jump straight into the New Testament and see how Jesus is king and how the New uh, Testament shows us that the kingdom is expanding and we get to participate in that. But before we jump there, I realized that that isn't what the psalmist was originally talking about. This is a reference back to Exodus 15. Right after the Israelites parted or got out of the Red Sea and God saved them from the Egyptians, one of the first things they proclaimed is God is king forever and ever. Why is that important? The Exodus is an image of this psalm, or this psalm is an image of the Exodus. What, what is the Exodus? It's God's people were oppressed. They cried out to God, and God answered them and broke the arm of the powerful and redeemed them and released them and freed them. And then afterwards, he sent them to Mount Sinai and gave them the law. And then he sent them to the promised land and cleared out the evil and the wicked and gave them a land in which he had promised way back in Genesis. What David is doing here is showing the truth of God's faithfulness to the mission that he created in the beginning for his people to be redeemed and freed. So what's David's answer to why are you allowing your people to be persecuted? Why are you allowing your people to be oppressed? Is you don't. You redeem them, you save them, you give them kings that are good, and you hold them to account when they're not. One of the most frustrating things about teaching through a psalm is there's no real resolution to specific stories. We don't know why the specific story, Psalm 9 and 10, was written. We don't know how God held the wealthy and the faithless man to account, but we do know 
that God held Israel to account for not taking care of the poor. We know they were exiled in part because of their lack of compassion in, in taking care of the helpless. And for us now, looking back at this and looking back through the New Testament, we know that God sent Jesus to rescue the oppressed and persecuted and poor. We know that he revealed himself as the king, not just to Israel, but the king to the nations. And we know that justice was ultimately poured out on him for the wrongdoings that those whom he would save did. I think through Matthew when I was reading this, and the first words that Jesus proclaimed after he was baptized and fasted for 40 days and 40 nights was the kingdom of heaven is near. And he proclaimed those words, and that was his ministry. He continued on and he preached the Sermon on the Mount, which defined what the kingdom is and how a person is to thrive and to live a kingdom life. And then he continues on and heals the blind. He gives the deaf hearing. I almost said gives the deaf sight, but that's counterintuitive because they can see and not hear, obviously. And he preaches the good news to the poor and the oppressed. In Luke 7, the disciples of John come to him because John is in prison. And they're asking, Jesus, are you the one that was prophesied? Are you, are you the one that was to come? And John's wanting to know this because he's about to die. He's about to be beheaded. And he wants to know, I think, that his life wasn't wasted. And Jesus' answer to him is, today you've seen the blind see, you've seen the deaf hear, and the, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Now, why does this matter for us? It matters because if we are going to participate in the expansion of the kingdom like we're called to do, we have to care about the oppressed. We have to care about the poor. And we have to do something about it. So I think there's three ways that we do this. One, we, we learn as a people how to lament and lament well the injustices of this world, which is hard not to let them overwhelm you or hard to actually care. Two, we proclaim the truth to ourselves as a reminder that God is present in times of oppression and faithful to his people and faithful to his mission, which is that people from every tongue, tribe, and nation would respond to the gospel and hear his word proclaimed. And three, we live out the kingdom. Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom to his people, and we are called to do the same. 
we get to participate in the rule and reign of Christ expanding. So how this plays out in your daily lives probably looks very different from one another. I know that when I first read this psalm and started praying through it, one of the realizations for me was I was practically living as if God wasn't actually king of my life. Um, I would go to work and I would see things happen, certain people taking advantage of others or taking advantage of me, and I would let that frustrate me and anger me and then just like be bitter. And when I was reading this psalm, I realized God is king of General Mills. When I go to work and I see injustices, or obviously not to this extent, but I see people being taken advantage of, or I'm taken advantage of, God is king. So my reaction to them is different because if God is king of General Mills when I'm working there, my work isn't for my boss or isn't for that company. It's for the king. And my action is for the king. And when I see people being taken advantage of, I get to go to them in their frustration and talk to them about who is actually king of that place and to give them a hope in the midst of frustration. And I've noticed my work ethic's a little better when I do that because all of a sudden making soup has eternal consequences instead of just making soup. Everything becomes significant when we start viewing our daily lives as actually part of the kingdom. And I'm encouraged as I have read this and studied through this by the fact that BC is so kingdom-focused that um, I wouldn't be kingdom-focused without BC and uh, another church in Louisville, um, Sojourn, and men point in my life with that. I think we see this happening in our MCs. I we see people caring for girls who are pregnant in a high school who face a lot of struggles. We see our neighbors being loved well, even if they're not the most lovable people. We see people who are addicted to drugs hearing the gospel preached. And I'm even more so encouraged by us sending people to some of the hardest places in the world where the gospel is hated. But I, I ask us today to think through our daily lives and think through whether or not we are truly caring about those who are the least in our society and in Hannibal, and whether or not we are active there. And I pray that the Lord softens our hearts towards those people and that we would go and proclaim the good news even more there. Because we have good news. Because while I, I don't think many of us, besides Reed, were murderers before we uh, came to know God, 
I do know that we were the enemies of God. That we were like the faithless man. That we did nothing in which deserved the love of Christ and his mercy, and yet him and his goodness called us to himself. And we are tasked with proclaiming that good news to other people who are the enemies of God, who in our societies are looked down upon and oppressed. As we transition to the Lord's Supper, I want us to think about three three things. One, I want us to pray that God would soften our hearts to the injustices that are in the world, and then specifically in Hannibal. Two, I want us to pray that he shows us how to respond with the kingdom to these injustices and how to move forth with the gospel. And three, I want us to thank God that he gave us Jesus when he didn't have to. At BC, the Lord's Supper is for everyone. If you are new here, um, you don't have to be a member. Um, You just have to trust in the Lord. Uh, Just come down the middle of the aisle and there's crackers and juice uh, at the tables. If you are not a believer, if you're not a Christian, um, the Lord's Supper is not for you. But I would encourage you to talk to somebody else um, about what the gospel is and its implications for your life and the freedom that it provides. Let us pray. Father, I thank you that you hear the cry of the afflicted and the needy. I thank you that you were just and that you were righteous. I thank you for sending Jesus. And I thank you for the hope that we have in a day in which oppression won't take place, in which we will get to live in the kingdom fully realized, which we are in relationship with you in its entirety. Thank you for the sacrifice that you made. It's your name I pray. Amen.